Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay me what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then the Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So, my heavenly Father will also do to you to do every to to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The king was in his counting house, counting out his money. The queen was in the parlour, eating bread and honey. This sums up the entire text, in my humble opinion. The king had so little imagination that all he could do with his money is sit in his counting house, usually a walled-in room with no windows, and count his money. It's all about calculation and terrible lack of imagination. How much he had was how much he was worth. The queen, on the other hand, was living a life of abundance. The land of milk and honey, the promised land, was called to the Jews. She was sitting, eating bread and honey. Sing a song of sixpence, right? We won't go into the rest of it. The next verse is a terrible critique on uh, British uh, 18th century health system where the nursemaid gets her nose picked off and nothing happens. And Anyway, 
But it really does encapsulate something here because Peter and the forgiven slave were just like the king in his counting house. They had a completely wrong idea about a number of things. The first thing they had the wrong idea about was sin. Sin is not something you do, it's something you are as a human being. Last week I said that sin came from the word for missing the mark when you're in doing archery. It was an ancient Greek word. And it's not a, sin, therefore, is not a list of the bad things you've done, which, of course, is the way many of us were taught as children, that we was to list the bad things we've done and promise never to do them again. Or, if they were really bad, hope nobody ever finds out. Then we have to live with them. But it's not a, bad, a list of bad things you've done, it's a state of being. And we, we know that. We know that deep in our experience, we're not the people that we wish to be. Paul said it, and, and we talked about this last week, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not an, an indictment, it's a statement of fact. That's just the way the world is. There's a glory in what it means to be human that we're not within a bull's roar of most of the time. And we know that. In fact, I know about it in me better than you will ever know because I'm clever enough to hide much of it, just as you are. We just do that. So last week I suggested, instead of saying, if my brother and sister sins, uh, it, it ought to be when or as or because, because that's the reality. It's the nature of the world. So they got that wrong about sin. It's not a list of things that you do that should be forgiven and ticked off, calculated. But they were wrong about forgiveness as well, both the forgiven slave and and Peter. Because it's not something you do and dole out. And Jesus is very clear about this when he says, no, don't forgive seven times, which, you know, is pretty good. Just forgive infinite number, which is crazy. It's crazy if forgiveness is a thing that you do. But I suggested in writing in the Clayton, if you've replaced the word forgive with the word love, then what Peter says doesn't make any sense, does it? Lord, how many times must I love my sister or brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? There's no times of love, they're just love. It's just the experience of love all the time. Forgiveness is not offered for what a person has done, although that sometimes is necessary and we need to experience it. But forgiveness is forgiveness for who they are. That's what Jesus is on about, that the mercy of God, to use the good old-fashioned language, the grace of God, another wonderful word that we use, they're given to us because God is loving and full of love and is love, not because of the things we've done or not done. So what would this look like in practice? If those two got this wrong, what would it look like? Well, take an issue that we have to deal with in increasing numbers at the moment because of COVID, according to the, service, the services that many of us know about, is domestic violence, both physical and emotional violence, of people trapped, and it must be worse in Melbourne where the lockdown has been so much longer. And it's important to use this as an illustration because the church has often been a, 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 a problem with this by telling particularly women who are 
married to men who are members or sometimes leaders in the church, that they should just forgive their husbands and take their cross. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It's a misreading of the, uh, misuse of the term. And just grin and bear it, essentially. That they need to keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving. Because, of course, domestic violence is most often a hidden crime that doesn't come out unless it's unless there's some terrible further event that goes on. Because those of us who perpetrate violence to our intimate partners don't want the shame of our uncontrollable rage to become public. And those of us who are the victims or survivors don't want that shame to be public either. Or the possible break of the relationship and the loss of income and stability This is what we're dealing with in our community all the time. We may be dealing with that amongst ourselves here. We all put on a pretty good face, but many of us might be struggling with this here right now. Or many of us have come from families where this has been the experience. So what does forgiveness actually mean? Well, it doesn't mean making excuses, obviously. It doesn't mean if I'm the perpetrator saying, well, I I can't help it, or this is how I was raised, or you made me do it because you made me so mad. And you take everything I say the wrong way, and that's why we end up like this. Nor is it an excuse for the victim and survivor. Oh, I always set them off. It's just the house wasn't clean enough. Or... They're under a lot of stress at work at the moment, and so it's sort of understandable. Or that's just the way they are. Whatever forgiveness is, it's not a bunch of excuses. There's no excuse for damaging another person's humanity, however it's done, whether it's done overtly or covertly, whether it's done physically or, as the experts are saying more and more, there's a lot more emotional um, domestic abuse going on, obviously particularly from men to women, but, but sometimes the other way. If your personhood, your full humanness, is being damaged or controlled or curtailed, that's not the way to live. You can't live that way. You can only exist. And it might require the break of that relationship. It might require significant intervention. These are things for each of us as individuals and individual situations. But it certainly means facing truth the truth of the situation. It turns out the person you're in an intimate uh, domestic relationship with is damaged. It turns out the person they're in an intimate domestic relationship with you are also damaged. It's a recognition of the truth of sin. As we've, we've said that Peter and the forgiven sir, uh, slave didn't get that, that we're dealing with damaged people. And the fact that any intimate relationships last for any length of time at all is extraordinary given the people who are trying to make it work, us. And we celebrate people who are able to stay together and make that work and do that with joy and fulfilment and a a life that releases each other into being who they could possibly be. But it's a struggle, isn't it? The truth is acknowledging what we really are, but acknowledging that that forgiveness of God is available to all of us. But it's also a truth of the reality of the situation, that sometimes things can't go on as they are. That I can't anymore be in this physical or emotional relationship where my life is being controlled or stunted. And so sometimes forgiveness means breaking things, 
means stopping things, means moving away. And we all know that in, in other relationships, the first response we have if we come across a, a physically angry person outside the supermarket who may or may not be mentally un, uh, uh, struggling, the, oh, who knows? The, our first response is to step back, to get away from that chaos. It's a good response. There may be other responses we need to take in certain situations, but that immediate response to, I need to step away from that, I, don't, I can't be damaged by this, is really important. So whatever happens in a domestic intimate relationship might not need to might need to not continue or a different kind of intervention. But it begins with that understanding of truth and it begins with forgiveness as liberation. Forgiveness frees the person who is forgiven. If you've done something terrible to someone else and they offer you forgiveness, it's an extraordinary weight lifted off you, isn't it? Even if it's a small thing. The fact that the person is willing to see beyond that, to see that what you've done or been unable or unwilling to do doesn't define you as a person. It defines what you did in that moment. And if you're being given forgiveness, it's an extraordinary gift. It sets us free. Now, of course, we have to receive that. Sometimes we're too wounded or too proud to let that seep in. And so we have it, but we're not experiencing it. And sometimes to do that, we have to relinquish some of our power. We have to be humble, willingly recognising what it is we've done or not done that we should have done and welcome that forgiveness as a kind of cream that you put on a burn that soothes it. The damage is still there, that still needs to be fixed and that might take time. But the forgiveness is there. But forgiveness also frees the one doing the forgiving, doesn't it? It's not easy necessarily to leave something behind that needs to be left behind. It may take a lot of time. But eventually, in forgiving, the experience loses its power over us. And it's difficult, particularly if the person you are willing to forgive doesn't accept that they require forgiveness, or perhaps they're long dead and you can no longer interact with them. But forgiveness allows that experience or those experiences to lose their power over us. Forgiveness is a decision about the past. You can't change the past. But the past doesn't have to hold you captive. Forgiveness is a decision about the past that ultimately determines the future. This is why people who suffer from domestic violence and it becomes public, either because they leave in the middle of the night with the children and whatever they can carry and go to a shelter, or they ring a friend and say, you probably don't know this is happening, but I need to tell someone. It suddenly becomes public which takes a great deal of desperation and courage. But when that happens, the future can become a, a, a different possibility than the past. Forgiveness is a decision that leaves the past behind and frees the future. So we've got this forgiven slave who could have, could have experienced all of this. 
He was forgiven, as if you've read the little article in the, in the Clayton, he was forgiven an astronomical sum of money. And the, the, the teller of this story, Jesus, uses the most astronomical figure he can think of to show what he's talking about. He's been forgiven something that the, the entire Jewish nation couldn't pay to the Romans as, uh, as a forfeit uh, in the time of, uh, of prior to Julius Caesar. It was an astronomical sum. He's been forgiven everything. His life has completely changed. He now has an opportunity to live free and full, to accept the forgiveness and to live into it. He could have celebrated that. He could have freed himself from counting, being the king in his counting house. He could have freed himself from the weight of having to manage the other, the small, tiny debt of a small amount of money that was owed to him. He could have freed himself from that and just let it go. I have a friend who recently uh, has decided after a number of years of being in an adversarial relationship with her ex-partner that uh, over some money that was owed, that she decided uh, that the emotional cost to her was greater than the amount of money that she might still get if she was willing to continue pursuing it in the, in the courts. And she needed to be free of that. And so she made a decision and she says it's changed her life. It's no, it, that's all gone. Yes, he's done the wrong thing. There's all that. But she's let that go. Has she forgiven him? I asked her that because we were in conversation about it. She said she didn't know, but that that was where she wanted to get to. Not for his sake. She said some choice words about him, which I won't repeat here. Not for his sake, but for hers. He could have, this forgiven sake, could have freed himself for all of that. Instead, he stuck counting. Now, the last verse, which is really bad because it sounds like God is going to send you to a lifetime of torture and your children and everything you own. Um, but the first verse says of, of the parable, for, the, for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. A lot of texts suggest, commentators suggest, it's not compared as in like, the kingdom of heaven is like this experience you're about to read, but you should compare and contrast what you're about to read with the experience of the kingdom of heaven. If you compare it to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, depending on the language, the world of God that Jesus is bringing into being, if you compare it with the way Jesus is operating, which is an operation of forgiveness, mercy, grace, welcome of everyone, forgiving people 70, 70, 70, 70, 70 times 7. If you compare it to that, and then you get to the last verse, and in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. And then it says, So my heavenly Father would deal with every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. How does Jesus forgive? How does Jesus deal with forgiveness? Well, we know. He just said, you just keep doing it because it's an entirely different way of being alive. If you choose to live in the system, be the king in your counting house, counting out your money. And that's the life you'll end up living. But God will deal with you by offering you forgiveness a way out, a way to live fully. Once, twice, six, seven, seventy thousand, seventy thousand times. And one day, maybe you won't be stuck. This slave won't be stuck in the numbers game, in a system 
that counts for nothing.